And uh, we launched this one, Songs About spiritual, uh, Spirituality and Seeking, with another uh, song by The Who, Pete Townsend, lead uh, singer and songwriter for The Who. He actually was interviewed about this song, The Seeker. And I dug this up. It's interesting. You go back to this repeated refrain. They call me the seeker. I've been searching low and high. I won't get to get what I'm after till the day I die. And Pete Townsend, when asked about this, said quite loosely, the seeker was just a thing about what I call divine desperation or just desperation. And what it does to people. The guy's been ruthlessly nasty and incredibly selfish and he's hurting people. And yet, at the same time, he's making a fairly valid statement. The only thing he really can be sure of is his death. And that at least dead, he's going to get what he wants, he thinks. Now maybe this describes you. I mean, at one point in your life, you describe yourself in desperation mode, uh, or maybe that's where you are right now. You would describe yourself as a seeker. You're in a kind of divine desperation, in a desperate search for God. Now you may not put it like that. You might not put God into the sentence, but nevertheless, the search is very real. We use phrases like, I need to find myself, I'm searching for my purpose, I'm seeking enlightenment, I need to find out what it is all about, whatever it is. Well, guess what? There is a book in the Bible that's all about seeking. In fact, it's all about the deep search, the deep search. And that's the book of Ecclesiastes, a nugget in the middle of your Old Testament. And it's written by a seeker who's looking for the same things. The preacher in Ecclesiastes Um, starts off his book, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 2 now, with these words. Absolute futility, says the teacher. Absolute futility, everything is futile. What does a man gain for all his efforts he labors at under the sun? What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Now, let's focus in a little bit on verse 2. He launches this, uh, this whole book with um, a, a verse that has the same word repeated five times. The word is rendered in the English as futile. Uh, some translations will call it vanity. Others will call it emptiness. Some will even call it meaningless. But really, the root Hebrew word is, uh, is, is the idea of air or smoke. And it brings to mind this idea of a puff of smoke that arises and then evaporates. So this really isn't teaching that everything in life is worthless. It's not really teaching everything in life is meaningless. What really the teacher is trying to say here is that everything in life doesn't last. Everything in life is short-lived. Nothing under the sun lasts forever. And yet, we hunger for permanence. So here's the seeker on the desperate search for permanence in a world of smoke. In a world where nothing seems to last. He wants reality. He wants solidity. And all he gets is futility. So he's looked everywhere under the sun. That's his euphemism. He uses that all the time in this particular book to reference the idea that he's looked all over the place. You know, all the places that the sun shines, which is everywhere. You say, like like what? Well, he was king in Jerusalem, so he had the means to look in a lot of places. Like in wisdom and in knowledge gathering. Uh, Solomon was a part of a a great renaissance in the ancient world. Ecclesiastes chapter 1 talks about it. I devoted myself to search for understanding and to explore by wisdom everything being done under heaven. But what is wrong cannot be made right, and what is missing cannot be recovered. You know what he's saying by this is, you know, I could just know everything. I mean, I could by investigation get all knowledge to myself and yet I can't bring justice to the world. I can't, you know, put the horses back into the barn. I can't reverse 
wrong. So even wisdom and knowledge, vapor. Where else does the seeker look? Well, chapter 2, he looks in pleasure. I said to myself, come on, let's try pleasure. Let's look for the good things in life. But I found that too was meaningless. Why? Well, I mean, you can only laugh so much, right? And then your diaphragm gets tired. You, there's only so much uh, orgasmic pleasure that you can have, and, and, and then you realize it doesn't last. Where else? He looked in wealth and work. Later, same chapter, Ecclesiastes 2, verse 8, I collected great sums of silver and gold, the treasure of many kings and provinces. So I became greater than all who had lived in Jerusalem before me. But as I looked at everything I had worked so hard to accomplish, it was all so meaningless like chasing the wind. So he's just like the seeker in the Who song. He's all these places he searched for, nothing lasting, everything is smoke. And thus far he is very much like the Pete Townsend character. Both are looking high and low. Both are a bit callous in their search for meaning and purpose. A little bit selfish not really caring who gets in their way in the middle of their divine desperation. We know that because Solomon, you know, accrues for himself a hundred wives. The seeker experimenting with drugs and all the attendant harms that came with that. I'm certain that's what the Timothy Leary uh, reference must mean. So a bit selfish in their desperate divine search. But then there's a turn. So very similar. And then there's a fork that divides in the wood. And there's, they find different solid places to stand. Do you notice that? So you got the seeker in Pete Townsend's song, and he keeps coming back to the one thing I can know is taxes and death. No taxes. Actually, he doesn't say taxes. He just says death. That's the one thing that I can know. Death is certain, and so maybe then, maybe after the grave, well, that's where I'll find something solid. But you notice when Townsend is interviewed about the song, he's, he's skeptical. It's like, yeah, the guy goes around and he thinks, he thinks. He'll get what he's after after he's dead. He's skeptical. But the seeker in Ecclesiastes is different. He finds something else solid to hang on to. And this won't come as a shock to you. He finds the solid ground is God. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. It's a 12-chapter book, by the way. Um, And uh, at the end of a long argument about meaning in life, he finally says, Here now is my final conclusion. Fear God and obey His commands, for this is everyone's duty For God will judge us for everything we do, including every secret thing, uh, whether good or bad. Now you say, well, why why is God this ethereal concept? Why would God be the solid place, the only thing that's not smoke in this life? Well, to help you understand that, let me just give you a, a bit of a picture. I want you to think about dominoes. Everybody loves dominoes, right? And no one actually plays dominoes. We just set them up. You know, no one plays the domino game. The game of dominoes is to set the dominoes up and then to knock them over. And you've all watched the YouTube videos, right? Like world record setting lines of dominoes where literally tens of thousands of these things and we love to see them. The one knocks into the X, knocks into the next and that whole thing. Friends, that's a picture of the universe. It is a chain of causation. And your life is just a domino. Your life is just a domino in a long chain of causation. Now, are you going to try to find your meaning in one of the dominoes? Or would you try to find your meaning in the domino pusher? Because every domino chain that falls begins with a beginner. And you know what we're finding is, in terms of philosophy, of course, this is really the only rational way to look at the universe. It is absurd 
to think that there is an infinite regress of causes. The philosophers have always known that. But now it turns out that the cosmologists, I mean like the scientists who are looking into the universe, are realizing that scientifically that's also the only way to look at the world. That there is not an infinite regress of causes going back. That there is a definitive, finite beginning to the universe. So you're going to find your value, your meaning in something inside the show? Or will you find your beginning in the beginner of the show? The prime mover, as Thomas Aquinas would call God. The first cause. The Townsend Seeker is basically saying, eh, you know what, I'll die before I'm going to figure this whole thing out. Before anything real is going to be revealed to me. So I'm just going to spin my wheels now, and when I'm dead, then it'll hit me. The Ecclesiastes seeker says something totally different from that. He says, no, don't wait. Death will be too late. The chance you have is now to know the first cause, who he calls the creator. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 1, remember your creator in the days of thy youth before you grow old and say, life's not pleasant anymore. Remember him before you near the grave, your everlasting home, when the mourners will weep at your funeral. Yes, remember your creator now while you are young, before the silver cord of life snaps and the golden bowl is broken. Oh, it's just beautiful poetry in this chapter. Now, he says, don't wait. Don't say later. Don't say, I'll seek God some other time. Now, today is the day. Isaiah chapter 55, the scripture will say, Seek God while he may be found. Today is the day. Come now while God is near. Today. Okay, you say, all right, Rick, I mean, I I can get that, but some of you have done just that. You've done the seeking process. And then you find the God hypothesis to be a pill that's maybe a little bit too hard to swallow. Marcus Mumford grew up uh, the son of Christian parents. Did you know this, Marcus Mumford, the guy who's the lead singer, songwriter for Mumford and Sons? Uh, His parents were John and Eleanor Mumford, and they led the Vineyard Church, which is a charismatic, conservative, evangelical denomination inside of England for the better part of 20 years. He was raised in that. But in all that time, Marcus Mumford found himself unsure of all he was told and found it all very hard to believe. And that's what this next song is about. That song always sends shivers up my spine. Uh, Rolling Stone did an interview with Marcus Mumford, the lead singer and songwriter of uh, uh, Mumford and Sons. And they asked him directly this point-blank question because he was raised in this Christian home. So they said, are you a Christian? And this is what he said, I'm quoting now. I don't really like that word. It comes with so much baggage. So no, I wouldn't call myself a Christian. I think the word just conjures up all these religious images that I don't really like. I have my personal views about the person of Jesus and who he was. I've kind of separated myself from the culture of Christianity. He's called his journey, his spiritual journey, a work in progress, and he has never doubted the existence of God. But then you get to that opening verse actually the first two verses of this song and he seems really that the target audience of the song is other christians right he's referencing those christians who have what he calls all your pretty feelings the feels you know they got all the feels of following jesus and uh, may they comfort you tonight but he doesn't have those feelings and he doesn't have that comfort instead he says i'm climbing over something 
I'm running through these walls, which is suggesting an, a wild, unbounded search beyond Christian orthodoxy, beyond Christian thought, to find something solid, to find meaning. And so I think he's saying to Christians, so certain of God and so certain of salvation, he's saying, I don't even know if I believe. I don't even know if I believe everything you're trying to say to me. And then later, I had the strangest feeling, your world, Christian, is not all that it seems. Now, maybe you're like Mumford, and you can just get inside that. You can say, you know, I, I haven't given up on the God thing. I'm in church this morning. <laughs> I'm open to the God question, not closed, but the whole church package. You know, that's what you're really not sure about. All the formality, all the rules, all the beliefs, and all those churches full of all those people who are so certain. And that bugs you. I get your reticence. I do. I really do. But I've got one question for you, okay? And here it is. If Christianity were true, would you want to know? Would you want to know? See, you get to that place in the song, and it rises in crescendo. I don't even know if I believe. And finally, he says, I don't even know if I want to believe. Listen, you get to a place like that, friend, then you answer the question, and it's very revealing. And I caution you, if your answer to the question, do you, would you want to know? Would you want to know? And if your answer is something, well, it can't be. Like, it's a preloaded answer. Well, it can't be true because X. It can't be true because of the view of sexuality. It can't be true because it's so narrow. It can't be true because then I'd have to give up X. Friend, listen, if that's your answer, then you've already answered you don't want to know. You don't want to know. And you've made up your mind without investigation. Now, maybe some of you have investigated. You feel like you've really walked through the waters on this. And you've looked into it deeply and you've searched the faith as it's held by, you know, a well-instructed adult and not by a five-year-old, which is what a lot of you know, skeptics will do, you know, erect the faith as it's held by some five-year-old Sunday school student and knock that down and think that you don't have to consider it any further than that. Well, but maybe you've done it. You've done the work and you've looked into it and you feel like the weight of the evidence is against it. Listen, I want to tell you, if that's you, no one at this church is going to say to you, you know, you just need to believe despite the evidence. You need to believe in the teeth of the evidence. You need to believe against what you think is true. I mean, no, listen, gullibility is not a Christian virtue, okay? But I want you to listen to something that Christian scientists, yeah, they exist. Uh, they invented the discipline. Uh, Christian scientist and philosopher Francis Bacon said in the 18th century, a little philosophy inclineth man's mind to atheism. But deep in philosophy bringeth men's minds back to religion. So I get it. Maybe you've done a little investigation. And a little investigation will lead you right out that door. And then a little more might bring you right back again. I'm convinced of that. Convinced as I am of the truth of the Christian faith. I'm convinced if you go deep. You know, a little bit superficial investigation and you throw the whole thing away. But a little bit more, a little bit more, and you see the depth of the evidence for Jesus as the Christ. Now, maybe that's what's going on with Mumford, honestly, because it seems like the song switches, doesn't it? Like the target audience in the Mumford song switches from Christians to God. 
Because all of a sudden, Mumford starts singing, open up my eyes. Tell me I'm alive. It's kind of like he's now turned to God and he's saying, you know, I want to know the truth. I, I really do. I want to know what's real. And he wants God to be obvious about it too. He says, if this is never going to go our way if I'm going to have to guess what's on your mind. You know, don't be subtle with me, God. I don't want to have to guess. I want revelation. I want to know. Say something. Say something like, you love me. So clearly, Mumford is in, whoa, he's knee deep in the search, right? And he's calling out to God and there's, his mind is plagued with doubt and he's in a really good place. He's in a really good place in this song. And you say, Rick, are you kidding me? You're a pastor, man. You're, I don't know if you know where your, you know, your end game is, is correctly located here. You think it's okay that a guy is in this place of white-hot doubt? Oh, he's in a good place, friend. Because doubt is good. You'll never get to true faith without it. Never. No, listen, doubt is good. I'll give you four reasons why doubt is good. Number one, doubt is good because it'll keep you humble. Doubt keeps us humble. Doubt will make you humble. Paul will say this in his letter to the Corinthians, the infamous love chapter, chapter 13. Now our knowledge is partial and incomplete. And even the gift of prophecy reveals only part of the whole picture. Now we see things imperfectly as in a cloudy mirror, but then we will see face to face. All that I know now is partial and incomplete, but then I will know everything completely, just as God knows me completely. See, Paul is saying we don't know everything. Absolute certainty is not a Christian position. And there are some people who think that that ought to be their position. And honestly, they make intolerable believers. I think some people would be better believers if they had more doubt. And you say, well, what? Are you, are you kidding? Look, I'm going to surprise some of you this morning. Look, you notice some Christians, you know, they walk around and they play the God card. You know, God told me this. God told me that. And then they're absolutely certain about these things. And then you notice God always seems to be confirming their deepest desires. Hmm. I have questions. And I think, friends, it's their absolute certainty like that that doesn't acknowledge the humility of the Apostle Paul. He says, we don't know everything now, even prophecy. We don't know everything. We see as in a glass dimly. Then, face to face, now our knowledge is incomplete. There's humility that comes with that. And in the arrogance of absolute certainty, well, You actually don't get to the deep places with God. Listen to me. If you have absolute certainty all the time, you won't go deep with God. We'll talk about that a little more in the third song today. But listen, it's that kind of absolute certainty that also turns guys like Mumford off because he's so deeply skeptical of the faith of someone who who doesn't process the same questions that he, he clearly has. So listen, it's okay for a Christian to say, I don't know. I don't know. That's okay. It's okay to say to God, I believe, help me with my unbelief. We're going to talk about that story where that line comes from in the scripture from Mark chapter 9 and extended later today. It's good to remember that there is a hero in scripture named Job who is a person of white hot doubt. In fact, can you read the Psalms and not feel the doubt and the questions and the uncertainty that permeate its pages as someone is going through the valley of the shadow of death. 
Do they think they know something? Yes. Do they think truth has been revealed to them? Yes. And if you follow Jesus here this morning, you are standing on some solid ground in the truth of Jesus Christ. But are there many unanswered questions? Yes, there are. So it keeps you humble if you doubt. And then it leads to a second thing. Doubt will help clarify the heart. It clarifies the heart. Are you really seeking truth? Or am I caught up in something else? Because sometimes doubt clarifies that your faith crisis has not been brought on by new evidence. It has been brought on by something else. It's not like a lack of evidence that has brought on your faith crisis. It's something else. It's your pain. It's my circumstances, my emotions, my imagination, my misunderstandings of the faith, my irrational fears, my temptations. See, doubt reveals that stuff. It's good to turn your doubt onto your doubt. Ever done that? See, that's intellectually honest, isn't it? It's easy, it's low-hanging fruit to be doubtful and skeptical of the belief claims of the Christian faith. I'm not saying you shouldn't examine it for that reason. Do, but listen, here's one step further. Turn your doubt and skepticism onto your doubt and skepticism. And when you do that, you start realizing that what's going on in you is not necessarily powerful negative evidence against Jesus that's been presented to you. Really, in your heart, What may be revealed if you turn your doubt on your doubt is that you don't want it to be true. I don't know, Mumford says, if I want to believe. And if you could get there, that's a a win because now you've clarified the heart. There's no atheists in foxholes, they say, right? There's also no theists in brothels. You get it? Yeah, no one found that as funny as I did in my preparation this week. Um, so look, in other words, no theists and brothels. When you really want to have sex with that person you're not married to, when you really want to tell a lie, when you really want to give in to manipulating control, when you really want to uh, be proudful, uh, prideful, when you really want to acquire some shady money and maybe when you really want to stop seeking virtue. Friend, listen, that is a moment when it would be really, really convenient if Christianity were not true. There are no theists in brothels. There would be a, that would be a moment when it would be really convenient, but friends, that's not new evidence. You understand? That's just a mood blitz. That's what that is. So, When you can be honest enough to doubt your doubts, it reveals what you want. And when you get there, that's a win. If you can just expose what you want to be true, and then you can get on with the business of finding out what is true. And then thirdly, doubt is good because doubt makes trusting possible. I can't find who to attribute this quote uh, to, but I'm really sure that a famous guy once said the following. Nevertheless, I think it's good. Maybe I'll claim credit for it at some point. (laughs) This guy says, God has put enough of himself in the universe to make belief reasonable, but he's left enough of himself out of the universe to make it non-compulsory. And I love that quote, because maybe it begins to answer for you a lot of the issues that you have with the lack of evidence. Like if someone says, you know, why aren't you a Christian? And you say, well, because there's not enough evidence. And what if it's true that God has put just the right amount of evidence into the world? Just the right amount. 
And why? Why would he not put the full amount? You know, the full amount. You, you, know, you, walk, you walk into a room with an atheist debating a Christian and you know, one of the first things they'll do is some, invoke some curse down on their head. If God is real, he should strike me dead. No God. All right, there you go. If God is real, he'll write my name on the clouds when I leave the room today. Rick, believe in Jesus. No, nope, no clouds formed in the special you know, code that would, I would recognize. Nope, I guess there's no God, right? But what if, what if we're asking for a kind of evidence that God is not even interested in giving? And why would God not be interested in giving all of that, the full amount, if he really, really wants to be in relationship with you because, friends, real relationship requires uncertainty. Real relationship requires uncertainty. Have you ever noticed that? That people are really crappy at relationship? They want certainty. They're control freaks. They're checking your Facebook page. They're checking your secret email. They're looking in your phone when you're not looking. They're going through your diary. Right? That's, th- th- that's toxic to relationship, and everybody knows it, even the people who do those kinds of behaviors. Why? Why is that toxic to relationship? Because intimacy is built on the bedrock of trust. Trust. And if that's true, what does trust require? Some uncertainty. Some not knowing. That's what it requires. Therefore, God is not hostile at all to allowing some uncertainty about himself. He has no problem with that at all. Why? Because God doesn't want you to believe in him like you believe in your math facts. He doesn't want you to believe in him like you believe that seven times seven equals 49, right? He wants you to believe in him like you believe in your spouse. That's how he wants you to believe in him. He's calling you to enter into a dance with him. And that dance will have some moments where you're blind and you'll turn your back to your partner And he won't be there, and then you turn again, and there he is. He's calling you into a dance of trust. So he's fine with a little bit of uncertainty. It's good. And lastly, doubt is good because it pushes us to seek truth. It pushes you for more evidence, and more evidence is good. You know John the Baptist had a moment of doubt? You know John the Baptist, right? The guy who, you know, he prefigures Christ, and he prepares the way for the coming of the Son of God. And he had powerful evidence to believe Jesus was who he said he was. He baptized him after all. He saw the Spirit of God alight onto him like a dove. He knew this is the guy. He's the one. But later, he's in a mood blitz, right? He's having a faith crisis brought on, well, by a lack of evidence for Jesus. No, it's brought on by a mood blitz. His circumstances, he's in prison. So he sends some of his disciples to Jesus to ask this one question. Are you the one we were to expect, the coming one, the chosen Messiah? Or should we expect somebody else? Now, can you believe that a guy with the credentials of John the Baptist could ever ask that question? And surely Jesus must have said to those disciples, you go back and you tell John to stop asking dumb questions. (laughs) You tell him just to believe, shut up, that's all the evidence he's going to get, and no questions. Uh, No, no, that's not what he said. He said, go back to tell John what you have heard and seen. God is not hostile to evidence. Here, some sensory data for you to confirm. Your doubts have, have, have 
created a, an, an uncertainty in your spirit here. More truth for you. And so he says, the lame walk, the lepers are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, and the lowly are learning that God is on their side. Luke chapter 7, 22. Here's more evidence that yes, I am the one. So in doubt, John asked, and in doubt, he sought, and in doubt, he pressed. And what did he get? More evidence. He got more evidence that what he was seeking was true. So the Bible says, ask. The Bible says, seek. The Bible says, knock. Ask and keep on asking. Knock and keep on knocking, and the door will be open to you. So you let doubt push you to hunger for what is true and guess what yes that might take you through some dark valleys but the bible says if you seek god you will find god if you seek with all your heart now if doubt can actually then be good i mean if you're convinced of that this morning okay you know what maybe doubt could be a catalyst that i could actually know what is true through doubt then maybe you'd be open to the idea that there is another catalyst that could inspire belief. And that's the subject of this next song. Kids okay? <clears throat> uh, you know, I don't know if that's a, 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 on the playlist in your home. It is in my home. I got two little girls playing that song over and over again. <laughs> Alexa, play Believer. Uh, so I looked into it this week and interested to know the background behind the song by Imagine Dragons. Songwriter Dan Reynolds says in the song, I was broken from a young age. And I thought, well, that could maybe mean a bunch of things. Because um, uh, this autobiographical note, he, was, uh, he, he deals with chronic pain from a condition called ankylosing, uh, well, let me get this right, uh, spondylitis, which is just a fancy word for really, really severe back arthritis. Just constant pain. And he's also dealt for his life uh, with depression, so that battle, the, the song says, has led him to take his sulking to the masses in the form of song. And as he has sung, now from the heartache, from the pain, he gave a message from his veins, in other words, from his guts, from the deepest part of himself. And what is that message? Seeing the beauty through the pain. Pain. Pain has made him a believer. It's made him a believer. Now here's the question. Made him a believer in what? Well, again, if you go autobiographical, you look into uh, Reynolds' life, he's some sort of a non-Orthodox Mormon. He is a spiritual person. That's how he defines himself. He struggles with Mormon doctrine, according to interviews, but he still identifies as a believer. So I think it's fair to say that pain has likely made him a believer in God. And it's confirmed, right? Later in the song, he's singing about uh, the, the, the Trinity, probably. Third things, third, send a prayer to the ones up above talking about the Godhead, and God is in the grace of the fire and the flames. So because of that, he can sing with kind of a visceral authority, let the bullets fly, oh, let them rain. My life, my love, my drive, it came from pain, pain. That's amazing to me, honestly. I mean, the message is very countercultural. In a world that has raised pleasure-seeking and pain avoidance to an art form, here's a guy saying, bring on the pain. Bring it on. It has made me. It has defined me. It has created life and love and drive in me. It has revealed grace to me. And it has made me a believer in God. Now, hold the phone. 
How is that possible? How is it possible that pain could make someone a believer in God? Isn't pain supposed to turn you off from God? Again, you listen to the debates with the new atheists, right? And what's your argument against God? They lead with this. Pain. Why is there no God? Because pain. And they almost always are invoking their suffering brothers and sisters in Africa who at a rate of more than, you know, eight to nine to one uh, from Westerners believe in God. The ones who suffer more, the rates of theism is higher. So, so we have to really question whether this is true, but is it true? We're told that certainly it is. God is supposed to be the one who gets rid of pain, right? Shouldn't God be our vending machine, which art in heaven? Hallowed be our claims. Isn't that the way it's supposed to be, right? And if life turns out to be full of pain, isn't belief in God therefore irrational? I mean, isn't God supposed to love you? Ah, yes, but we need to define love, don't we? Let's define what love is. The problem with believing in a God of love in a world of pain is only unsolvable so long as we continue to have incredibly superficial and often, I will say, childish definitions of the word love. If your definition of love is limited to the idea of mere kindness or mere niceness, then yeah, I guess uh, God allowing pain into your life must mean he doesn't love you or he doesn't exist. They're your options. If that's the way you define it, For what nice person would ever allow someone else to suffer if they had the means to stop it? But what if God is different? What if He's different than the way we picture Him? What if God is not the grandpa who says, well, nothing matters so long as the kids are having a good time? What if if God is not like the indulgent mom who puts the happy children in front of the TV with chips and candy while she nods off with a bottle of wine in the afternoon? What if God's not like that? What if God is not like the one person who said to me recently, I know God, and he just wants me to be happy. Well, what if if that person doesn't know God? Like, what if God is not like these caricatures that we make? Friends, kindness and love are not synonymous. They're not. There are people who are kind to others who can be completely indifferent to their actual welfare. In fact, sometimes your kindness leads you to be the most kind to people you know the least, that you really don't really care about and just out of sight, out of mind. You just want to fix their problem. Be kind to these people. People who want government-paid zones where drug addicts can shoot up more safely, they're definitely kind people. I have no doubts about their kindness. I have some questions about their love for those people. There are people who are kind to sick people, and they always seem to be the ones who tend to be wanting to facilitate their deaths. There are people who are kind to pregnant women who are in crisis and they always seem to be indifferent to the long-term effects uh, of terminating pregnancy and, of course, to the life of the unborn child. I mean, you can be kind and not be loving. Kindness is not the same thing as love. Love wishes the ultimate best for the object of love. Love calls forth the, the fullness of realized potential in the beloved. And when it comes to God's love, His love makes the object of His love more what God is. And the Bible says God is love. So God's love in your life is to make you more lovable. That's what he wants to do. He wants to make you more a thing like God is. 
So his love is there to transform you into love. So if we are, as Reynolds suggests, not that, Reynolds suggests about himself, I am broken, I am sulking, I am full of heartache. Hey, that's me. He's reading off of my notes. I am broken, I am sulking, I am full of heartache. And if that's true of you and me, then you and I might want a God who just tolerates all that stuff or ignores all that stuff or instantly tries to fix all of that stuff. We might want a God like that, but friends, what if that means you're asking for less love and not more? And if we're defining love the way the Bible defines love, I think that's the case. C.S. Lewis, in his excellent book, you should all pick it up and read it, it's called Problem of Pain. He deals with the subject and he says, You ask for a loving God, you have one. The great spirit you so lightly invoked is present. Not a senile benevolence that drowsily wishes you to be happy in your own way. Not the cold philanthropy of a conscientious magistrate. Nor the care of a host who feels responsible for the comfort of his guests. But the consuming fire himself. The love that made the worlds. Persistent as the artist's love for his work. Despotic as a man's love for his dog. Provident and venerable as a father's love for a child. Jealous. Unstoppable. Exacting as love between the sexes. You ask why God doesn't answer every prayer with a yes. And the answer is simple. Because this would be a way to create monsters, not believers. You know, when you give your children everything that they ask for, they are happy and they feel that you love them. But really all you've done is just been kind to them for their instant gratification. You don't really love them to treat them that way. And so, friends, if you got everything that you wanted, you, you say, oh, I would believe in God. Oh, if I just had everything I wanted, then I would believe in God. I'd be so thankful. Listen to me. You would stop believing in God. You know why? Because you'd start believing that you were God. Because your every wish, your every desire came into being just by thinking it. You're like God. Creation, creation happened like that. God spoke and then it was. God spoke and then it well, was. You must be God. You just think it and then it happens. Awesome. But not awesome. Because sulking, broken people become monsters if that's their situation. Our prideful hearts, they will not surrender easily. So if there's unanswered prayer... Well, that drives you to God. If there's loss, if there's pain, pain grabs on and it won't let go. And it says, something is wrong here. Get help. And so Lewis will say again, same book, but pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And if your heart's anything like mine, it will not bow the knee easily you know it's there's there's a tough arrogant um, spirit in me that will not easily bow the knee and we won't so long as all is well as long as everything is happy right then we won't bow we won't seek why would we we have no motive to we have no reason to but take comfort away and the heart will begin to search it will begin to start to look for a cure so now, I just got to make this personal for you. Is that happening to you? Maybe pain has come into your world. 
and the search is on. Now, maybe you're right in the middle of the Mumford song. I mean, the pain is on, and therefore the search is on, but then you've come through the whole doctrine piece, you've come to the belief idea, and you're just finding it so hard. In part because of unanswered prayer, because you're not getting the nuggets right when you feel like you need them. Like, God, why are you being so subtle with me? Stop being subtle with me. And friend, I want to direct you to an idea now. What finally are you after? Are you after the gift or the giver? Are you after something that God could do for you? Or are you after God himself? Now I want you to understand, the end game is God. The end game is intimacy with your Father in heaven. That is the end game. Not any one of the beautiful little gifts that God will love to sprinkle along the way. And he is not opposed to that. What did Jesus say? He says, if you ask God for a loaf of bread, will he give you a snake? God wants to give good gifts to his children. But he understands that the gifts that he gives can sometimes actually be the very thing that cloud our view of him. And so if he takes them away and we rail against heaven, I don't think God is opposed to that state of affairs, friend. Because he's calling you into intimacy with his, himself. When he calls Abraham in the Old Testament, he says, Abraham, I am your shield, your very great reward. God is the reward. You understand? God is the end game. Intimacy with the Father is what it's all about, not any one of the Father's good blessings. And I've really had to process this myself, friends. And something that's been so instructive for me as I look at Moses, and he's trying to bring the, the children of God into the, into the promised land, and they're hard-hearted and rebellious. But God's promised the land through the patriarchs. And so God says to Moses, I'm going to give you the land. I'll make that happen, I promised. But I'm not going to go with you because you are stubborn and stiff-necked people and you rebel all the time. And I think that was instructive for Moses to teach him something because Moses wakes up to the realization, wait, if we get the land but we don't get God, we have nothing. If we get the gift, but we don't have the giver, we have nothing. And so Moses cries up to God in that moment. He says, Lord, if you don't go with us, do not send us up from here. Friend, can you climb inside the idea that what God finally wants with you is intimacy? And he has allowed everything he's allowed into your life so that you could know him. So that you could Know his grace so that he could be your shield and your very great reward. If you ever get to a place like that, then you will say, along with your brother Paul, um, he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, to keep me from becoming proud, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me and keep me from becoming proud. Three different times I begged the Lord to take it away. Each time he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I'm glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in the insults, in hardships, in persecutions, and troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Could you and I 
get to a place where we understand the grace of doubt, the grace of uncertainty, and yes, I'll say it, the grace of pain. For if so, then you might just be right there, ready to walk into a kind of intimacy that you've never known before, through the valley of the shadow of death, into a God of grace who could say, when I am weak, then I am strong. Let's pray. God, there's somebody here who has walked through the moment of shaking their fist at heaven, and perhaps they wondered if they committed such a horrible heresy that you could never look at them again. May they turn from that today and realize that that kind of raw honesty is what you want, and that when we beat our fists against your chest, we are just then coming into truth. And so may we be, Lord, a community of people of a kind of terrifying honesty where we can say what's going on inside of us and not be ashamed. And as we walk through the valley of the shadow of the darkness of our own doubt and pain, that we'd realize that you are there, even there, calling us to your side. And may we find you there where your grace is sufficient for us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, friends, I'm glad you're here taking in the challenge of the gospel. And if you've got questions about this, you can actually process them. That's why we have extended. So in a couple minutes, that's what we do is extended where there's talk back time. We go a little deeper into some of the Bible verses we've talked about. And you can ask questions and make comments and we can learn together. So that happens in two minutes. Next week, as Dan says, we go through the mission of the church. We're going to have some video testimonies. You do not want to miss these stories. We're going to tell next week and we will see you then. Invite a friend. We'd love to have them.